At the tip of the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec, there's a huge sheer rock formation that rises out of the water. And from a distance, it looks like the sails of a ship, but in reality, it's Perse Rock, one of the world's largest natural arches located in water. There are legends about the rock, and it's often shrouded in fog. The locals call it Le Génie de l'Ile Perse, a genie in the mist. Others see the rock as a phantom, especially during storms, as it looms on the horizon. The region has other phantoms too. Three American hunters were murdered in the Gaspé in 1953, and a local man was convicted of killing one of them and later hanged for that murder. His name was Wilbert Coffin, and his story still haunts people to this day because many believe he was innocent. Coffin Affair, Episode 1, Murder in the Gaspé. My name's Catherine Campbell, and I'm a criminology professor and a lawyer, and I work at the University of Ottawa. I've been doing research and teaching in the area of miscarriages of justice for over 20 years. I'm particularly interested in Canadian cases of wrongful convictions, and one of the many cases I've studied, this case of Wilbert Coffin, really stands out for me. I believe this case brings to light the ways in which the Canadian criminal justice system can fail people so badly. I spent the last six years researching this case, poring over books and legal decisions, traveling to the gas bay, speaking with people who actually knew Wilbert or know Wilbert's story, almost all of whom believe he was wrongly convicted for a murder he didn't commit. In this podcast, over the course of the next six episodes, I'll try to get to the bottom of why Wilbert became identified as the killer, from the story of that fateful day when three American hunters were murdered, to the questionable investigations that followed, from the trial and conviction of Wilbert Coffin, to what happened afterwards, including efforts to clear his name. Because more than 60 years later, one lingering question just won't go away. Did the criminal justice system get it right all those years ago, or was the wrong man hanged for a crime that he did not commit? Deep in the Gas Bay Woods on July 15, 1953, the body of Eugene Lindsay was found, one of three missing American hunters who'd been in the region hunting bears. They'd been missing for a month before their families began to worry and notify the authorities. A search party had set out to find them. It was comprised of provincial police, local townspeople, and it included a man named Wilbert Coffin, a local prospector and hunter. Just three years later, Wilbert Coffin would be hanged for murder in Bordeaux Jail in Montreal. The Gaspé region of eastern Quebec is a very remote forested area and it covers almost 12,000 square miles, including a peninsula along the south shore of the St. Lawrence River to the east of the Mattapedia Valley in Quebec, bordering the Atlantic Ocean for about 80 miles. The name Gaspé is said to come from the indigenous Mi'kmaq word Gaspeg, meaning end or rather end of the land. The Gaspé also claims the title of Cradle of French America, as on June 24, 1534, explorer Jacques Cartier lost anchor during a storm and took to land. Despite being greeted by an indigenous group, Cartier claimed possession of the area by planting a wooden cross with the king's coat of arms and the sentence, Vive la Roi de France, 
which was really one of the first acts of colonialism on this land, Turtle Island. The Gaspé of the 1950s differs very little, in my view, from the Gaspé of today in some respects. It continues to be remote and sparsely populated, mostly French-speaking, with some English settlements. While train service ran up until 2013, you can no longer travel there by rail given the deteriorated condition of the tracks. The Gaspé is a 10-hour drive from Montreal, but the road wasn't built for heavy traffic, and a large majority of it is on dangerously narrow two-lane track bordering the St. Lawrence River on the north side and the Shikshok Mountain Range on the south. The Gaspé is also close to the France-owned islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, which are off the coast of Newfoundland, a prominent site for bootlegging during Prohibition. In fact, the islands were the wholesale trading post for Americans during Prohibition, described as America's alcohol warehouse. And traders would often use coves in the Gaspé as storage holes on their route. As Cynthia Patterson, a local Anglican minister and historian, tells us... There was all kinds of illegal stuff happening here. Stuff coming in from the States. But also, just in a cove, just a little way from here, regularly illegal booze came in from St. Pierre Miquelon. Albert Patterson, a local fishing guide, remarked to us as well on the alcohol smuggling. It's a rum, kind of a rum. And they sell it very, very cheap. Fishing boats would go over there and buy it and bring it over here and sell it by the keg. But I mean, they they brought in tons of that stuff in here during the the, uh, prohibition. So who was this guy, Wilbur Coffin? In the summer of 1953, Wilbert Coffin was 37 years old. He came from a family of old English stock, and he had 10 brothers and sisters. Wilbert's family descended from one of the the initial English-speaking families in the area. And while he was described as a bright child, his schooling didn't really go beyond grade school, which was not uncommon at that time in the Gaspé. Now, Cynthia Patterson has lived in the region for most of her life and has this to say about Wilbert, or also known as Bill, and his family. Bill's family, um, like most families around around here, um, they were people who cut wood, you know, cut pulp wood. There are people who, in Bill's case, was a prospector. Um, one of Bill's, two of Bill's sisters, my aunt Edie and um, and Rhoda, Judy's mother. Um, they worked in a restaurant. People didn't have big incomes. People didn't have formal education. And I think that that was a really big part of it. That summer of 1953, Wilbert was working as an assistant cook at the Baker Hotel, but he was really a jack-of-all-trades. He was also a prospector, a woodsman, and a veteran of World War II. He'd had distinguished service with the Black Watch, a Royal Highland Regiment, and the 8th Field Armored Division in Africa and Europe during the war. While he worked as a cook that summer, he also spent a lot of time in the bush staking claims as he'd been prospecting for strategic minerals, in particular copper, that was discovered in rich quantity at that time in some sectors of the Gas Bay. For example, Murdochville is a copper mining town, or was. Most of those who knew Wilbert referred to him as not a nine-to-five guy. He was someone who worked sporadically in the woods and around town. He was kind of an unconventional person. 
He was also an English speaker in a largely French community in Quebec with limited knowledge of French. He was in a common law relationship with Marion Petrie and had a son, James, which was unusual for that time, especially in a Catholic community. I met his niece, Judy Reeder, on one of my trips to the region. She was a child when Coffin died, but she agrees with all accounts that he was unconventional. I don't know what to say. We all know that he drank. We all know that he uh, he was a prospector, so he was, uh, I don't want to say a wild person. I don't, I don't know I don't know how to describe him, but uh, he wasn't a guy that stayed, lived in a house and went to work nine to five every day and came home. He wasn't like that. He would go off and in the woods prospecting and come back and... Two or three weeks later or longer. And, yeah. You know, yeah. So he had, he, would, he had a very different lifestyle than from a lot of people. She went on to tell me that despite what might have been an unusual lifestyle, his character was beyond question. From all of the stories that we've heard over the years, he was, he would give you the shirt off of his back if, if you needed it. He was a very giving uh, person and he would help uh, anybody that needed help, he would help them. So that's what we could find out about Wilbert Coffin. Now what about the victims? Eugene Lindsay was a 45-year-old railroad steam fitter from Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. And on June 5th, 1953, he and his 17-year-old son, Richard, and a 20-year-old family friend, Frederick Clark, left for a hunting trip to the Gaspé. Now, during the 1950s, the Gaspé Z region was very popular with American hunters, particularly those seeking bears. And the hunters were appreciated by the region as a significant part of the tourism economy. In fact... The Pennsylvania Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs in the 1950s boasted over 200,000 members, many of whom would venture to Quebec for bear hunting. Now, Eugene Lindsay had hunted in the Gaspé before. This particular trip, though, was supposed to be a graduation present to his son Richard, and they left home the day after he finished high school. They drove a pickup truck equipped to spend a couple weeks in the wilds of the Shikshok Mountains, and yet months later they would return to Pennsylvania in body bags, well, parts of them anyway. Eugene Lindsay was not unknown in the Gas Bay, and his reputation wasn't simply that of an out-of-town American tourist. He was seen as a somewhat shadowy figure. Back in Pennsylvania, he was known as a loan shark among the rail car workers at the plant and was allegedly involved in other questionably illegal activities in the area. Now, Michael Rooney he grew up in the Gas Bay and he works today as a lawyer in Washington, D.C. He's fascinated by the, the coughing case and he's actually writing a book about it. He has investigated both the Lindsay and Clark families in Pennsylvania and he had this to say about Eugene Lindsay. By day, he worked as a pipe fitter at Altoona Works, which was a large you know, rail car production facility for the Pennsylvania Railroad in Altoona. But he was much more wealthy than a person should be if you're you know, just a pipe fitter. I mean, I'm sure he made all right money, but he was much more wealthy than anyone else that worked at Altoona Works. So what else was he involved in? The First thing to come out about him was that he cashed checks for workers. Well, actually, we can go back and step back from that. He owned a bus line. He owned a bus line, started with one bus, bringing people from rural Blair County into Altoona Works. And it 
expanded as large as 18 buses coming all from the surrounding counties in New Altoona every day. To and from work, yeah. Uh, workers at Altoona Works. And he also cashed checks for workers. What he would do is if someone, say, had a check for $100.75, he would cash a check at $100, pocket the 75 cents. And you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but if you do it for a few thousand people, it ends up being, you know, 15,000 people were working at Altoona Works at the time. And he would go in at the end of every shift on every Friday. You know, three shifts a day, 24 hours a day. He would go in at the end of all three shifts. So it's, you know, it was a significant amount of people he was doing this for. Lindsay's reputation followed him to Gaspé, where it's alleged he played in backroom poker games and was rumored to be having an affair with a woman in the town during his visits there. Another rumor, one that may have been closer to the truth, was that Lindsay traveled with two wallets, one he used publicly that his wife estimated contained no more than $650 for the entire trip to the gas bay, and a second with a couple of thousand dollars of his loan shark money. Lindsay's son-in-law, Ronald Ritz, told a reporter investigating the crime that Lindsay had a habit of flashing money and had more like $2,600 than $600 when he left home. It's also possible that Lindsay may have been connected, once again a rumor, to some of the bootlegging that was going on in the region. There seems to be a number of people from Pennsylvania who may have held a grudge against him. In fact, at the time of the murders, some of the reporters from the Toronto Star investigated Eugene Lindsay. And as Michael Rooney further tells us... They found out from people around town that Eugene Lindsay was loaning money at... Uh, very high interest rate, 20%, which is significant and above any amount allowable by law. Essentially paying out $10, paying $12. And by the sounds of things, he didn't really want to wait for payment too much. Now, there's little to say about the other two victims. Richard Lindsay was 17 years old, recently graduated from high school, and was slight in build, about 130 pounds. Not much is known about him, and given his young age, that's not surprising. Frederick Clark, 20 years old, was a friend of Richard Lindsay's and a rather large individual, about 225 pounds. Some called him a gentle giant. And because of his size, many speculated that Eugene brought him along as muscle for protection in case he ran into any business acquaintances. However, there's really no evidence for that. And Nothing else suggests he was there in any capacity other than as Richard's friend. So now let's talk about what happened and what is known about the American hunter's final trip to the gas bay. After driving about a thousand miles from their homes in Pennsylvania, the Americans pulled into town in their pickup truck on June 8th and they got food and hunting licenses. They told people that they met that they were planning on hunting in the deep woods about 50 miles or so to the west of the village and they were on their way. They're gonna stay in some rough cabins that were free to use and open to anyone hunting in Gas Bay. And calling them cabins though is kind of a stretch because they were really just shacks in the woods, very isolated in the heart of the bush and since most of the good timber had been taken out the area had been burned over it was a good berry spot that bears enjoyed 
Many of the roads into that part of the woods are rough and primitive most of the year, and special permission from the authorities is needed to use them anytime, except for the few weeks in the summer when tourists flock to the area. Even in the summer, though, they still pose considerable danger, and locals were known to get stuck in them. Now, there's several routes into the bush to hunt. The Lindsay Party chose the St. John River Road route, which, unbeknownst to them, had flooded the week before they had gotten there. Fairly early on the first day of their journey into the woods, the group's truck got stuck in the mud at Indian Fork River. So after a night of sleeping beside their truck, help reached the Lindsay Party. Locals Thomas Patterson, Oscar Patterson, and William Eagle arrived and towed the truck a mile and a half and suggested the Lindsay Party try the Murdoch Road, which the rescue party believed was clearer. The hunting party took their advice and began the drive down the Murdoch Road immediately. And while they should have been able to reach the cabin site that day, for whatever reason, they didn't make it. Perhaps the roads are too rough to continue in the dark, or maybe they already had run into more car troubles. While what held them up can never be known for sure, they decided to camp on the side of the road again that night, but was only three miles from the camp. And it was on this road that the party would meet Wilbur Coffin and their fates would become intertwined. Early on the morning of June 10th, Wilbert left his parents' home to go prospecting in the bush. He'd agreed to meet Angus MacDonald that morning, a man he'd been prospecting with in the days prior, to return to the woods together. Although MacDonald had given him $20 for gas and oil for the truck, in exchange for a share in the profit of the sale of any claims, he was an inexperienced prospector. So that morning... Thinking he'd be better off on his own, Wilbert never showed up to pick up MacDonald, and instead he returned to the bush alone. Potentially a deadly mistake. Coffin traveled along the Tom Brooks Road into the bush that morning and found the Lindsay Party about a mile and a half east of Camp 21, where their truck had broken down. And because Coffin's the only one that makes it out of the woods alive, it's his account of what happened next that we're relying on. When Coffin found the Lindsay party stuck on the route to Camp 21, he stopped to offer help. Eugene Lindsay was sure the problem with the truck was that it needed a new fuel pump, and he asked Coffin to drive his son Richard into the gas bay to buy a new one. In exchange for this, Eugene promised Coffin $40 when he returned. Now, agreeing to help them involved driving a 100 to 120 kilometer return journey on muddy, unpaved roads back to the town of the Gas Bay. The journey took several hours, and along the way, Wilbert and Richard got to talking, and Coffin commented on Richard's pocket knife, a unique model that had come from Japan that Coffin offered to buy from Richard because it would be useful for his prospecting. According to Coffin, Richard gave him the pocket knife as a thank you for Coffin's help. When they got to the village, Wilbert and Richard stopped at a garage and handed a mechanic the defective fuel pump from the truck, but the mechanic couldn't fix it, so he sold Richard a new one. When Coffin and Richard returned to the camp, that's where the story takes a twist. Coffin claimed that when they arrived back, he found Eugene Lindsay with Fred Clark and two other men two Americans that Eugene Lindsay seemed to know but Wilbert had never seen before. Coffin described them as being in their 20s or 30s but couldn't remember their names. 
He also said he saw an Army-type Jeep with U.S. plates next to the truck. And the Jeep was unusual as it had a homemade yellow plywood body. The atmosphere, according to Coffin, was friendly, and the party of six built a fire and they ate together. But before Coffin left the Lindsay party behind with their two new friends to get to his destination, which was Camp 21, Eugene Lindsay asked that when Coffin was done prospecting and on his way back to the gas bay, that he stop by and check on them in case they failed to get their stalled truck going. Coffin agreed, and he went off to Camp 21 and stayed prospecting for two days, sleeping in the woods. On June 12th, on his way back into the gas bay, Coffin stopped to check in on the Americans as he'd promised. He found the truck, but no sign of the Jeep, nor any of the hunters he'd left behind, nor the two other Americans. After waiting about five hours with no sign of the hunting party, Coffin decided to leave in order to make it back to Gas Bay before dark. He assumed the party must just have been deep in the woods hunting and probably wouldn't return to the camp that day. On June 13th, Coffin left the Gas Bay and traveled to Montreal to spend some time with his common-law wife and son. He then left again to travel to Val d'Or in northern Quebec, where he met with mining company officials about his claims. He would remain there for several weeks. Meanwhile, the Lindsay Party's hunting trip appeared to be lasting longer than expected. They'd been due back in Pennsylvania around June 15th, and while they had brought enough supplies to last them a couple of weeks, Eugene Lindsay had extended hunting trips to the Gas Bay in the past, so no one back home really thought anything of it at first when they didn't return. The hunter's disappearance had gone unnoticed in the Gas Bay as well, as it was not uncommon for hunting parties from the U.S. to enter the woods at one end and depart from another. However, Eugene was expected back at work by June 20th and never showed up. By July 2nd, the Lindsay and Clara families had become concerned and tried to contact the police in Gaspé. They were only able to do so by July 8th. The local provincial police contacted a woods guide, Thomas Miller, to investigate. Miller found the Lindsay's abandoned truck about a mile and a half below Camp 21. Amongst the gear in the truck was a rifle, unfired in its case and with the safety catch on. Frederick Clark's camera was also in the truck. A number of trained woodsmen converged at the scene. They noticed several odd things. One was a set of tire marks that did not resemble the pickup's tire marks. The marks were in mud and they were protected from weather by some overhanging brush. There were also a couple of empty whiskey bottles that had not been purchased in the area. This evidence wasn't preserved because at that point, no one knew a crime had been committed and they saw no reason to treat the area like a crime scene. The immediate assumption was that the hunters had wandered off to get help as they'd been unable to free the truck and had gotten lost. It was now July 15th a month since the fuel pump had been bought in the village, so the woodsmen assumed the hunters had likely died of exposure somewhere in the woods. At that point, the search went into high gear, and nearly four miles from the truck at Camp 24, the searchers found some human remains torn and mauled as if by animals. About 50 feet from the bones, the searchers discovered Richard Lindsay's rifle, unfired and with a safety catch on, on the opposite side of a brook. 
The discovery of the rifle led them to believe that the remains found scattered across the river were Eugene Lindsay's. However, his head and lower leg bones were never found. The bones they did find were between the camp and a stream, apparently dragged there by bears, and shreds of his shirt traced their course. There was a mark on the wood of the rifle, perhaps made by a bullet, and some human hair and dried human blood stuck to the rifle butt, later found to belong to Eugene Lindsay. Pieces of scalp had fallen off the rifle. It seemed bears had eaten some of his clothing along with the flesh. His buttons from his jacket were found in bear droppings a short distance away. It was later revealed by the pathologist's testimony that his skull had lain on the ground for some time as hair follicles were also found. Given that this body was without a head, the pathologist, Dr. Roussel, was able to identify it as Eugene Lindsay's due in part to his long fingernails, a fact told to authorities by Clarence Clark, Frederick's father. It was impossible to determine the cause of death from those remains. On July 20th, Coffin returned to the Gaspé region with some officials from a mining company in Val d'Or who were there to investigate some of his claims. When he heard that the hunters had disappeared and a body had been found, he helped continue the search as he had seen them in the bush and knew where they had been. Clarence Clark, Frederick's father, also traveled to the Gaspé himself to help with the search for his son, who by this point he didn't expect to find alive. On July 23rd, the bones of Richard Lindsay and Frederick Clark were found two and a half miles further, Camp 26, between the camp and the river. Near their remains was one of Eugene Lindsay's cigars, the group's only smoker. Various belongings and pieces of clothing were found near the bodies. Richard's watch, his ring, and lighter were found beside him, and his clothes were lying a few feet away. His rifle was found 300 feet away, the muzzle plugged with mud. One of the pieces of clothing was the tattered remains of a t-shirt with the words Holidaysburg Tigers written on it. Richard had been a big supporter of his high school sports teams that bore that name. Finally, Frederick Clark's skeleton was found near his rifle with his clothes nearby. Up to that point, the search party had assumed that the hunters had been attacked and eaten by animals. It's very rare for a bear to attack and devour a living person. In particular, black bears, which are the type of bears that populate the Gaspé woods, seldom attack humans on sight and usually avoid people. They're actually quite timid. Also, if a bear had attacked one of the hunters, surely the other two would have had time to remove the safety catch from their rifle and shoot the bear. Further examination of the clothing of Richard Lindsay revealed that almost dead center in the heart of the t-shirt was a bullet hole. A similar size hole was found on the back of the t-shirt. Dr. Roussel, the medical legal authority, admitted the hole could have been made by a pellet traveling from either the back or the front, and it was impossible to identify the gauge of the rifle, as shell casings were never found. Given his wounds in the pathologist's reports, Richard Lindsay would not have died right away. We'll come back to this evidence later, as Richard Lindsay was the only one of the three victims where the cause of death could be ascertained. A further search of the area where Richard's body was found yielded a ring, a pair of binoculars, a pair of jeans, oddly with the pockets turned inside out, and remnants of a jacket which had been dragged through the mud. In the jacket was 31 cents. No other money was found. 
However, Eugene Lindsay's wallet was found a few days later near a thicket. Papers and identification had been partially pulled out of the wallet, but there was no money found. Despite the fact that 50 or 60 people searched the area of over seven or eight miles, no bullets or shell casings were ever found. This is very bizarre. About seven miles away from where the stalled truck was found along a ravine were a number of significant articles belonging to the Lindsay Party, including a bedroll, a camp stove, an empty gas container, and other odds and ends. This was along a rough wooded trail that could only be negotiated by a rugged jeep or a truck. According to seasoned woodsmen who were part of the search party, the way that the articles were scattered and the broken brush and other signs indicated they were tossed with some force from the top of the ravine from a vehicle in motion. Now, given the way the articles were tossed, speculation was that two persons were likely involved. Albert Patterson recalls his father's and uncle's story regarding their belongings. And one of the things that really sticks out in my mind so strongly is after that the bodies were found, it was just the whole area was searched. And my father and my even my uncle he said in those days they plowed roads for tractors to hollow lumber or, or, or tree or wood. All they did was made a trench tree. Okay. There was banks of ground up on both sides of the road. Now when they followed the trails it was Second, I think it was the second body. There was clothes thrown out in the woods right. on both sides. Right. So therefore, one man, if he was driving a pickup truck, would have to drive about 50 or 60 feet and stop and throw something out. Drive a little further and stop and throw something out. It, uh, they always felt those two people, at minimum two people involved. One person driving and one person throwing. Conspicuous by their absence were two things, a large bag of groceries bought in the Gaspé village and a large valise that had contained most of their belongings. Given that several people in the Gaspé village had identified Coffin as accompanying Richard Lindsay into town the last time he was seen alive, Coffin was questioned by the provincial police. He gave his account of what happened, including encountering the Lindsay party in the woods with a broken down truck, driving Richard to the village for the car part, and upon his return, seeing two other Americans in a yellow Jeep, which he described in great detail, and that when Lindsay paid him the promised $40 for his favor, his wallet seemed to contain a lot of money. What Wilbur didn't tell the police, that which later contributed to his downfall, was what he did when he discovered the abandoned truck. We'll talk about that, the police investigation, and Wilbert's arrest in the next episode of The Coffin Affair, A Miscarriage of Justice Revisited. A number of sources were used for this podcast and a number of people interviewed. While far too long to list here, all of that information is available on the website at www.wilbertcoffinaffair.com.